You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome to the program, everybody. Hello, Canada. Happy Tuesday as we uh, enter into spring. And April showers are one thing, but mass shootings are another. And all too frequently, we get a mass shooting somewhere in the world, often in the United States, sadly. And again, another mass shooting. And and we're going to focus on that. And if they go live and if we get an update on the mass shooting, which we're waiting any minute now, um, you will find out that at minimum right now, at the very minimum, we know that eight people were shot and eight others injured, at least. So 16 injured and, and eight shot on a subway in Brooklyn. And it has been a chaotic, horrible scene. There are no active explosive devices, but according to the um, police there, several undetonated devices have been found. So this is about 36th Street and 4th Avenue in Brooklyn. So this is a line that goes rush hour. You're essentially getting on on the subway from Brooklyn, crossing the river, and you're going to go to work in Manhattan. And this was rush hour. And apparently of the, you know, 50 people on a subway car, it was mayhem in there. And the doors opened and there was, it was a bloodbath. And we don't know, again, we're going to get a briefing soon uh, on what happened. I know many people have been taken to the hospital. Um, Obviously, there are concerns about the the cause of this. We, We just don't have a lot of information to confirm to you and one must be very very careful what's the quote situation who's behind it Uh, what motivated it obviously anytime you hear mass shooting uh, you think of and New York obviously is this an attack of some sort an act of terrorism not an act of terror all these things are acts of terror they terrorize but Uh, Will this be technically, according to Homeland Security, an act of terrorism, or is it a mass shooting of another sort with the horrific uh, pandemic of gun violence that we see around the world, but specifically uh, endemic to the United States? And sadly, I don't say that as a political statement. I say that as an act of fact. Um, Witnesses who have come off this subway car who heard the gunshots and some, including the conductor who thought first... I thought were fireworks, but I'm now hearing was gunshots. And then the doors open and we're talking about 8.30 a.m. Here we are now at 12.08, 12.08 p.m. And the New York City Fire Department and the New York City Police Department are, are all saying that uh, they're trying to figure out the situation. There was blood on the floor, said one of the witnesses there was a lot of blood trailing on the floor and at the time in the moment i did not think it was a shooting because it sounded like fireworks all i saw was people trampling each other trampling over each other trying to get into the door which was locked There was a lot of panic but thankfully the train moved to the next stop and everyone filed off in a rush so imagine what was going on with 40 50 people packed in a subway car as we wait to hear the briefing on that. So that's happening. This is a passenger on the train at the time. He told ABC News he wasn't sure 
what was happening. Listen to one eyewitness. I thought someone got hit by the train because he was asking for medical assistance, but I didn't know there was a shooting. I didn't know any of this happened until after. Reporter Aaron Katursky says the suspect is still at large. Listen to this. Police say they're looking for a lone gunman in a reflective vest seen possibly wearing a gas mask after opening fire in a subway car or at a subway station in Brooklyn. There was some kind of a smoke condition on an N train and it pulled into the 36th Street station with smoke wafting out of the doors. Police say multiple people have been shot, a number of additional people injured. The conditions were not immediately clear. That's Aaron Katursky, reporter Rhiannon Ali was volunteering at her kid's school in the area when it was put into lockdown. Check this out. They immediately over the intercom said shelter in place. No one is allowed outside of their classrooms. So they immediately locked all the doors to the school, all the classroom doors as well. So there's lots of questions. What was the smoke? We know there's some some kind of um, device there. Um, Who was the shooter? What is the condition of those injured, the fatalities? Uh, here's an update right now. I, I, let's listen in. Breaking news right now. Uh, let's listen in right now to the update from New York. Lever from the MTA will give us the status of the system, and then we'll be able to entertain some limited questions. There will be another briefing later this afternoon where we'll be able to update that, and then additional briefings as needed. First Deputy Mayor Lorraine Grillo. Thank you. Thank you, John. So from the very minute this incident occurred, the mayor and I have been on the phone monitoring the situation constantly. We have uh, worked with all of our agencies, the FDNY, NYPD, OEM, uh, all of the agencies who have worked really hard together, and we continue to throw all of the city's resources at, at at this situation. We've made all of the resources available, and we'll work with the Office of Emergency Management for any additional needs. I'm going to ask the police commissioner, Keyshawn Sowell, to speak to you and give you an update on on the events of today. Thank you. Good afternoon. We're here to update New Yorkers about an active shooting incident that took place this morning inside the 36th Street subway station on the N line. I want to begin by assuring the public that there are currently no known explosive devices on our subway trains and this is not being investigated as an act of terrorism at this time. We can also report that although this was a violent incident, reportedly we have no one with life-threatening injuries as a result of this case. This investigation is only hours old, so please note this information is subject to change. Just before 8.24 this morning, as a Manhattan-bound N train waited to enter the 36th Street station, an individual on that train donned what appeared to be a gas mask. He then took a canister out of his bag and opened it. The train at that time began to fill with smoke. He then opened fire, striking multiple people on the subway and in the platform. Again, we will describe him as an individual. He is being reported as a male black, approximately five feet, five inches tall with a heavy build. He was wearing a green construction type vest and a hooded sweatshirt. The color is gray. 
At this time, we are working with our federal partners where we are asking for the public's help. Anyone with information, videos, or photographs, no matter how insignificant they think it may be, is encouraged to call Crime Stoppers at 800-577-TIPS. All calls are strictly confidential. I'd like to turn it over to the FDNY to give information about the victims. Oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. The governor would like to speak now. Governor Hope, my apologies. That's right. Uh, good afternoon. This morning, ordinary, ordinary New Yorkers woke up in anticipation of a relatively normal day. They left their homes en route to school, en route to their jobs, and to a normal day, as I mentioned. That sense of tranquility and normalness was disrupted, brutally disrupted, by an individual so cold-hearted and depraved of heart that they had no caring about the individuals that they assaulted as they simply went about their daily lives. This individual is still on the loose. This person is dangerous. They're asking individuals to be very vigilant and alert. And you'll get more reports on specificity as the day goes on. So this is an active shooter situation right now in the city of New York. I just got off the phone with the mayor. He's recovering well, he's monitoring, he's actively engaged in the situation. I wanted to let him know that the people of the entire state of New York stand with the people of this city, this community, and we say no more. No more mass shootings. No more disrupting lives. No more creating heartbreak for people just trying to live their lives as normal New Yorkers. It has to end, and it ends now. And we are sick and tired of reading headlines about crime, whether they're mass shootings or the loss of a teenage girl or a 13-year-old. It has to stop. I'm committing the full resources of our state to fight this surge of crime, this insanity that is seizing our city because we want to get back to normal. It has been a long, hard two years. That's what we crave, that sense of stability and normalcy. And this is what the mayor and I are going to continue to work toward. And I thank the partners, the brave people of the MTA, the first ones who had the sense, the drivers of the train, to leave the station to make sure no more victims could be hurt. The NYPD, FDNY, state police, everyone involved in this has one purpose, and has to stop the insanity of these crimes. You'll hear now from our fire department. I want to thank them for being there to help us defuse a volatile situation. But we'll be giving continued reports as this day unfolds. Again, we ask everyone to be careful, be cautious, report what you see. It is likely that someone out there listening to this is going to help us lead us to that individual. You have a description of what they're wearing. You know the details. But this is the day we pull together as New Yorkers, united in a common purpose to say no more. And that is what I'm going to continue to do as the governor of the state of New York, working with our local partners right here. Thank you. Good afternoon. This morning, the FDNY received reports of gunshot victims in the subway. Thanks to their quick response, we were able to treat 16 patients. Ten of those patients are suffering from gunshot wounds at this time, and five of them are in critical but stable condition in our local hospitals. Can you say that again? 
Yes, we have 16 total patients. Ten of them are suffering from gunshot wounds, and five of them are in critical but stable condition at this time. And I'm going to pass it over to the MTA for an update on our subways. Okay. First of all, we have to thank the NYPD and the FDNY and the whole team who've done so much to protect us and help immediately to recover from this situation. And I also need to acknowledge the MTA workers who had were, were had the, the, thought, the foresight to immediately move a train that was on the platform, the R train, out of the station so it could carry people to safety. That was, that was smart thinking. Right now, uh, B service is suspended, W service is suspended, the D and the N and the R are running with suspensions and some shuttle buses. Um, and folks should check the website for latest. Obviously, it's a disrupted uh, day, um, but a lot of the system is, in fact, running. Um, I just want to say one thing on a personal note, which is on 9-11, I stood on 4th Avenue and watched people, New Yorkers, come back from that tragedy. And I thought, I watched New Yorkers help each other and storekeepers walk out and give people water. That was the same thing we saw on the platform today. We saw New Yorkers in a difficult situation, an emergency, helping each other. That's the subway riders. That's who New Yorkers are. Every day they're showing people in the subway, which is our public space, that New Yorkers of all varieties can come together in small spaces and get along and create something bigger. That's what we remember in these emergencies, as well as the tragedy and the thought for the for the quick recovery of the victims. Is New Yorkers are incredibly resilient just after, as they are in every emergency, and we thank them for what they've done, and we thank the governor and the mayor for their leadership in all of our recovery from COVID and from every one of these challenges. So just to reiterate, we're going to be le very limited in what we are able to answer in questions. Uh, just to also underline our partners here, we got Mike Reagan. Uh, Mike Reagan is the assistant special agent in charge of the Joint Terrorism Task Force with the FBI and NYPD. John DeVito from ATF is helping us with tracing efforts and investigation. Uh, he's the special agent in charge for New York City. We're the Brooklyn District Attorney, Eric Gonzalez, who is also here. And, uh, of course, Chief Ken Corey, Chief of Department and First Deputy Commissioner at Gabon. Uh, we'll start off with questions for the police. Was the shooting on the train? Was the shooting on the train or on the platform? Was the suspect on the platform or in the train? And was it... It was, did it all happen in the 36th Street Station or what happened down at 25th Street? The suspect was in the train car, the shooting began in the train car. Commissioner, can you give us some more detail exactly what happened in the car? Did the suspect say anything? What type of weapon did he have? And what was going on inside the car as this all happened? So, as I stated before, we're only able to get a limited information because it's under investigation. As the train was pulling into the station, the subject put on a gas mask. He then opened a canister that was in his bag, and then the car filled with smoke. After that, he began shooting. Guys, one time, guys, one time. Hang on. Commissioner, uh, does this appear to be random? Any idea why this individual did this? And we do not know the motive at this time, but we're not ruling anything out. There are a variety of other injuries from smoke inhalation to shrapnel uh, to panic from the incident. When you say shrapnel, what would the shrapnel come from? It could be from anything. It's still under an investigation at this time, so it could be a grazing from a bullet. It could be from the panic following the incident. Not from an explosive device? Not at this time. 
We're endeavoring to determine that right now. Okay, Josh. Uh, why were they trained? Mr. Why do you connect this more to the litany of gun violence and not terrorism at the same Why rule out terrorism? I'm not ruling out anything. Uh, we're determining what that motive is, and we'll find that out as the investigation continues. Do the victims tend to one particular uh, ethnic group? No, sir. The victims have a variety. Does anybody else recover we got time for about two more. Why were the trains not shut down immediately? And if they were, could it have been easier to catch the, the suspect? That's not the case. How were the cameras working on the subway station? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Were the cameras working on the subway station? That's under investigation as we speak. Do you suspect this is an MTA worker, given that they were wearing a construction vest? We have not identified. We have not identified the subject. He was wearing a green type construction Governor Hochul, do you want to comment on the arrest of your Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin? Did he speak to you this morning? Were you aware? Will you continue to campaign with him? I'll be happy to report on that later today. We'll have a statement out there. I've not had a chance to speak to him. I was on doing media interviews this morning, but this is not the place, but I will be addressing it very shortly. Let's focus on the fact that there are people in a hospital right now fighting for their lives. Those are the people we're thinking about and praying for at this moment. All right, thank you very much. Listen, we're going to get... Hang on a second. Hang on a second. We're going to get back to you with a time for an update later. The information is developing. We expect to have more later, and that will not be here. That will be um, either at the precinct or headquarters. We'll find an appropriate location where we have enough room and we can do this in a controlled environment. That is the uh, update we have been waiting for. I'm going to go over it carefully. You heard from the uh, governor, the police chief, the head of the subway system. Here's the details. At the 36 subway station and on the platform, a man wearing a construction vest and a gray sweatshirt, a African-American male, 5'5", five, five, with a heavy build, and a gray sweatshirt and a green construction vest, put on a mask, opened some kind of canister, filled the subway train at the 36th station with smoke, and then opened fire. We don't know what kind of weapon he used. It was 8.24 a.m., so rush hour. We don't know the motive. There are 10 people with gunshot wounds. There are 16 people in total injured. Five are in critical but stable condition. The suspect is at large. The suspect, the shooter, is gone. And police are asking for the public to help apprehend him. Was it an act of terror? Well, there were two conflicting messages. One, we heard the police chief say this is not an act of terrorism and there are no known explosive devices. And there is no one with life-threatening injuries. But then we heard later, how did you know? How are you ruling out terrorism? And they say, we have not ruled out anything. So it's hard to kind of figure out the motive. Very little information there. And one of the reasons there is likely very little information is the shooter still at large. Police are in a frantic and full search 
to try to find the suspect, the individual who donned a gas mask in a subway on a busy subway in Brooklyn on the 36th subway station on the end line, opened a canister. What a terrifying moment, filled with smoke, and then just started opening fire. Uh, and then opening fire on the platform, if I'm listening to the police chief right. But we just don't have any details. The quote was open fire on the subway and the platform, but we don't know what that means in terms of the platform. Ten people have gunshot wounds. Five are in critical but stable condition. So that's an evolving situation. They are going to have another update, but clearly the police uh, and the uh, fire department and the um, mayor's office and the governor's office are not really wanting to speak very much because they don't have any information on the shooter. There was a question about whether the shooter wearing a construction vest might be a city worker, no information. There, or a, a subway worker, no information. Were the cameras, the surveillance cameras, I mean, this is a, a subway station, there are many cameras there. Were they working? We don't know. That is, quote, under investigation. So it's not like the police have released a, a video already. They have not. They have asked people to submit videos, which raises the question, were the security cameras functioning, which would be a critical piece of information. But pretty major shooting on a New York subway in Brooklyn, on the way in Manhattan, uh, 8.24 a.m., and, and just absolutely terrifying moments. The subway system is obviously still working in other parts. It's a very complex system if you've ever used it. But there are <coughs> clearly... Some kind of some kind of smoke device. Now, it's not an explosion, but some kind of canister of gas and smoke enough to fill a big subway car and cause the pandemonium that allowed the shooter to shoot and injure at least 10 people, 16 injured, and then escape. In the pandemonium and smoke. And here we are at 1227 p.m. In this um, resonant and and, and, and incredibly um, emergency situation, essentially in downtown New York, Brooklyn on the way to Manhattan. And, you know, very little information four hours later. I just, I, I, you might have suspected there'd be a video, there'd be a picture of the suspect, but there will be an enormously intensive manhunt uh, of the type that happened after the Boston bombing, the marathon bombing, and they've got to find this suspect. But again, we just don't have information. If there is an update, of course, we'll break it live here on the Evan Solomon Show. But uh, shooting at the uh, New York City subway station, 16 people injured, 10 shot, 5 in critical but stable condition. Um, And again, that's the information we know. And um, you will get updates, and you'll hear more of this throughout the day as we roll through that. The suspect, uh, heavy built, black male, 5'5", wearing a green construction vest and a a gray sweatshirt, and that's it. That's all they know. 
All right. Um, we're going to take a break from that. If there's any more news, obviously, we'll bring it to you. Um, when we come back, the conservative leadership race has heated up, as you know. And I played you yesterday the conversation I had with Jean Charest, former Quebec premier, former leader of the progressive conservatives, uh, who was hitting back at Pierre Polyevre, saying that he told me on Sunday he should be disqualified from the race because of his support for, as Charest says, the illegal blockades or the trucker protest. And, and Polyevre hit back calling saying Charest should be disqualified because he worked for Huawei and took money as a part of a law firm uh, from Huawei while the two Michaels were imprisoned in China. And he's a liberal and a liar, and, and on it goes. Meantime, the quest is to sell memberships, and we know now there are debates coming up in May. But what I did yesterday was I asked Tasha Carradine, who's the co-chair of the Charest campaign, and Jenny Byrne, who's the mastermind behind the Polyevra campaign, to join me to debate their two candidates and wait till you hear what they said next. As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. Pierre Polyevre should be disqualified from the leadership race, according to Jean Charest. That's what he told me on question period. Actually, Jean Charest should be disqualified from the leadership race. That's what Pierre Polyevre says, because Charest worked for Huawei when the two Michaels were in prison. Charest's a liar, says Pierre Polyevre, and Pierre Polyevre is fooling people about cryptocurrency and other things, says Jean Charest. My God. This race is, is, is as nasty. Meantime, people like Patrick Brown are quietly selling memberships and selling memberships. Remember, it's all about memberships. So you've got April 29th. We'll find out finally if all the candidates paid up all the money. And then they got till June to sell all their memberships. And then in May, we're going to start the first debates. So yesterday I had um, the Sheree and Polly Everett camps, the, the two key sort of surrogates as they were. Jenny Byrne, the CEO of Jenny Byrne and Associates. You know Jenny. She's on the show a lot. Conservative strategist, former advisor to Stephen Harper, now uh, a key advisor, maybe the mastermind behind the Pierre Polyever campaign team. And Tasha Carradin. You know her. She's a regular. She's the principal at Navigator, but she's now the co-chair of the Jean Charest campaign team. And I have brought them on together to talk about the battle between their two candidates. And, and I, my first question was to Jenny Byrne. And I said, Jenny, Mr. Polyever supported... Um, the truckers, but Mr. Charest says he supported the illegal blockades and that he thinks he's above the law and therefore should be disqualified from the leadership race. Uh, what's your response? Well, I think that's ridiculous. I, I, it's hard for me to understand why Jean Charest is even running for leader of the Conservative Party because he seems to dislike uh, every member of the Conservative Party. You, you've got a a party uh, that overwhelmingly supported the Freedom uh, Convoy. Uh, you have caucus members, including our interim leader, Candace Bergen. I'd like to know if Jean Charest thinks that she's not capable or uh, credible to run uh, as, and, and, and also disputes the, the, hundred, the thousands and thousands of Canadians across the country uh, over the last three months that supported that. Uh, you know, Mr. Polyev's Pierre's, uh, and, uh, Pierre's speeches and our events and uh, where we're we're selling memberships have have drawn 
close to 20,000 people in the last two weeks. And so I think it's going to be very hard for Jean Charest, someone who recently joined the, the party, the same as Tasha, um, uh, recently joined the party, to be able to say that uh, that that this is not what the Conservative Party is uh, is looking for. Tasha Carradine. Yes, Evan. Well, where to start? Um, you know, uh, the history of Jean Charest with the Conservative Party and its predecessor, the Progressive Conservative Party, goes back as far as mine, actually a bit farther, almost 35 years, because he was there on the front lines during the uh, government of Brian Mulroney. That's where I got to know him. That's one of the reasons I'm supporting him for leader, because he has a deep understanding of what conservatism is in this country, what it can do, how to achieve great things like the free trade agreement and the other projects that were achieved, the acid rain treaty, for example, under Brian Mulroney's government. He's also run a province. And yes, he was a liberal in Quebec. I know, Jenny, you're going to come out with that one, but there was no Conservative Party at the time. Uh, I guess, you know, Christy Clark was a liberal in British Columbia. Conservatives pretty much lay claim to a lot of what she did, too, because at the time there was no Conservative Party in the province. But, 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 and but Tasha, the party represented the, the center right. So if I could just say, I, I think a lot of the, the attacks. Listen, a lot of the attacks that you launch on Josh Ray as to why he's running, he's running because he firmly believes that this country needs another national party to govern it. And the direction that you're espousing, and yes, that some members of the Conservative Party do espouse currently, is not a direction that is going to take us to a majority government. And it's hard to argue with that. I mean, you get crowds. Yes, you've got thousands of people. So did Maxime Bernier in the last election, and he got 5% of the vote. So quite frankly, I think if you want an opening, look at what's happened with the NDP Liberal Coalition. It's given us an excellent opening on the Senate to write to pull in voters who feel now they have no home even with the Liberal Party and no home in a Conservative Party, though, that would veer as far right as you would take it. So why don't we go to the place with a leader who can attract enough people to actually get us into office and make the good things happen we need to for this country? Right. Well, Jenny, I would say... Uh, go ahead. Well, I would say I find this all ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not sure where uh, Tash is getting her information from in terms of uh, what Canadians are, are looking for it now. The, the modern Conservative Party, something that a party that she just joined herself in the last couple months, um, uh, governed half of the last 20 years, 10 of the last 20 years. Stephen Harper was prime minister uh, for that time, a time where uh, uh, Pierre Polyev was, represented a suburban uh, seat in Ontario for 17 years of that. Well, her candidate, Jean Charest, actually campaigned against us. I, I remember working in the 2008 war room uh, when, uh, well, you can you can giggle about it, Tasha, but I remember Jean Charest actually campaigning against caucus members that we have, like uh, Jacques Gourde, who is still in caucus, campaigning against us in terms of uh, in terms of policy. So we, you can giggle all you want, and you can make light of it, but the fact of the matter is, if you want to look at the modern conservative movement, let me finish, uh, in terms of what the, what the candidates are talking about, I think Jean Chere is completely disconnected from not just what conservative voters want, but from what Canadians are looking for now as well. They don't want another, they do not want another uh, uh, Justin Trudeau. And right now, that's exactly uh, what he is offering uh, to the Conservative Party membership. Well, I well, don't know where Tasha. you're getting your information. Yeah, sorry, Evan, if you want to ask a question, but I'd like to respond no, no, to that. I, 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 no, I'd not, love you guys I, to respond, but, but can you just also pick up on why Mr. Shrey said he should, this is a strong word, he should be disqualified from running. I'm just, uh, is that a serious question that they, you literally think that he should be, or is that a, a metaphorical use, like he shouldn't, people, he's not a credible candidate, or you actually think he should be disqualified? 
I think it's a, it's a metaphorical use in the sense of saying that if you're going to govern a country and if you're going to be a parliamentarian, that your first duty is, of course, is to uphold the laws of the land. You make those laws, you debate those laws, and you uphold those laws. And, you know, I find it very interesting because I'm, I'm trying to picture what would have happened under Stephen Harper if you'd had an occupation of downtown Ottawa for three weeks, as we saw with the convoy. Would that have gone on as long? And, you know, Jenny, you were there. Stephen Harper was an extremely strong leader. He took strong decisions, unlike Justin Trudeau, of course. I, and, you know, to equate Josh Ray with Justin Trudeau is laughable, too. Josh Ray is the reason that we're sitting here. Without him in the 1995 referendum, which the, the no side won, by the way, by less than half a percent, uh, we wouldn't have a country to even be talking about. He took on himself to get involved in that campaign, to stand for Canada. That is why he's presenting himself this time around. And that is an achievement that you cannot take away from him. To diminish his involvement in the party currently, because he was not a member of the party, per se, because he was doing other things. Yeah, he was running a province. Uh, you know, I think that also is a bit ridiculous. For the last 10 years, he, he was working for Huawei. He wasn't running a province. Well, yeah, your, last... your candidates never worked for anyone except the government, frankly. So he's always been on the taxpayer's dime. Well, Josh Ray worked for a law firm. Josh Ray worked for in the private yeah. sector. I think private sector experience is excellent. Let me address Huawei, because I find that very interesting, no. too. Josh Ray was on Tout le monde en parle last night, and in French, um, so he made out of Huawei. It. He was very, very clear about his stance on Huawei and his stance that he would have never worked for a company that he felt was not in the interests of Canada. And he says, yeah, things have changed. He would ban 5G. He's been very clear. He would ban five, Huawei from the 5G network. The work he did was it, to bring the two Michaels home. It was to make a deal, yeah. yes, because someone had to that represent not, Huawei or they wouldn't have come home. Ask me to ask me to know. Hold on. Let, let me get Jenny. Let me just get Jenny to respond to that. Sure. Go ahead, Jenny Burke. That is, Tasha, that's not true. He was hired by Huawei to actually do 5G. How we know that is because that is what, what Huawei has confirmed. He was not hired yeah, that's by Huawei. Ali, that's what Alikan Velchi of Huawei said, yes. Um, anyway, I will just say I mean, that I Josh Sheree has been very clear as to his involvement. Okay, his well, I can't hear you both, guys. I, I, Tasha, hold on. Which no, was to bring I'm going to take a break, but I want you to know that's that. not true. Tasha, you're actually lying. What you're doing right now is lying. I'm um, lying. Josh wow. That's what your you candidate says to you. Guys have been so negative during this campaign. It's really Gosh, unfortunate we've had to take the gloves off at this Gosh, point. You guys, you guys called for True. for Pierre to like be disqualified. You are lying right You've now. You've been attacking Why our candidate from the very beginning. Why don't we take a good break there? Uh, Jenny Byrne, campaign advisor to Pierre Polyevra, and Tasha Carradine, co-chair of the Jean Charest leadership campaign. There's more. What about Huawei? What about the nastiness of this race? Who can win? Uh, look, this gives you an indication of what these two camps are saying. Uh, these are two incredibly experienced professionals, Jenny Byrne and Tash Karen. You want to hear more of the charade polyevra battle? Jenny and Tasha are on the other side of a break. You don't want to miss it. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. So Jenny Byrne, who is a campaign advisor, maybe the mastermind behind the Pierre Paul Ever campaign, is taking on Tasha Carradine, the co-chair of the Jean Charest campaign. I brought them on together after Charest said that Paul Ever should be disqualified because of his support for the truckers. And Paul Ever hit back and said Charest should be disqualified for getting money from Huawei while he worked at a law firm during the two Michaels. Are these allegations 
accurate. So I said to Jenny, um, Sheree said Paulie Ever should be uh, disqualified. Paulie Ever has hit back and said, you know, Sheree's a liberal and a liar. Are you alienating potential voters for the conservative party who may like Sheree now, but if, if, if Paulie Ever wins, you've lost them now? Well, I don't think it does. The fact of the matter is, is Jean Charest, uh was a liberal. He was a liberal premier for a decade. He also campaigned against Stephen Harper, the conservative prime minister of the day. He supported policies like the long gun registry, uh, for example, the $2 billion boondoggle, which Tasha has talked publicly about it being a boondoggle um, and being a waste of money. So he also uh, led a scandal-ridden government that uh, had to pay back uh, and a party that had to pay back uh, thousands of dollars to uh, elections Quebec. Tasha's also said that uh, it, she, she she has said in the past that John Sheree had a scandal-ridden government. And so I think all of this is fair game. It was it was uh, Mr. Polyev uh, responded. Pierre responded when uh, Jean Charest came out yesterday and said that he shouldn't be allowed to run because he supported a movement which thousands upon thousands of Canadians across the country uh, supported. But I just want to go back to, Evan, the Huawei stuff. Uh, Tasha, you, you you can't be saying with a straight face that Jean Charest was hired to negotiate a release for, for the two Michaels on behalf of Huawei. Um, because he was hired uh, by uh, he was hired by uh, Huawei for to uh, advocate for 5G. So if what you're saying is different, I would call on uh, Jean Charest and I would call on McCarthy Tetro to release the the, the uh, details of his contract. Was it fifty thousand? Was it seventy five thousand? Was it a hundred thousand dollars a month that Jean Charest and McCarthy Tetro were paid uh, to represent Huawei? Okay. Uh, Tasha, uh, that's going to come up again, and I know yeah, I have asked Mr. Sharia about that. He said he. Well, so, what's the response to that? Well, the response is twofold. First of all, Mr. Sharia has been very clear that he was hired to bring Huawei to the table in terms of the, the discussions of the release. He wasn't. He was not. Yes, he was. It wasn't a question of Huawei saying yes, let's release. It was a question that he, they had to be at the table to discuss this. He was representing their interests there, and in terms of you know getting out contracts and this kind of thing, um, you know as well as I do, Jenny, that law firms have confidentiality with their clients. They're not going to release contracts. They're not going to do that. And you're calling on that is just the same kind of stuff that your candidate says about slamming things, institutions like the Bank of Canada, saying that Bitcoin, you know, we're going to make Canada the crypto capital of the world. The kinds of stuff that sounds it's a nice little soundbite but when you really dig down it means absolutely nothing and in fact it's often disinformation you know i find it very interesting in particularly these attacks on the bank of canada that pierre polyev has because we know that in the 2008 financial crisis when your candidate was part of the harper government one of the reasons the country weathered that crisis so well was the leadership of the bank of canada when stephen harper had to run up huge deficits by the way to deal with that crisis and canada came through that really well thanks to the leadership of the bank of Canada. And I didn't hear no, Pierre Polyev complaining about it then. Um, it was thanks it was to the leadership of both, yes, the government, but also the, the policies of the bank, which maintains stability in this country. That's what the bank does. Okay. You know, I don't think most can most Canadians want to go and buy things with crypto the way your, your candidate's encouraging them to do. When you even have okay. economists, when you even had Kevin O'Leary recently saying it's 
an investment, but it is, it's a speculative investment. It is not something you use as a currency. It is something you hold in your portfolio. Most Canadians don't get that, but okay. your candidate doesn't make the difference. So, so let me, and it's disinformation. Let me, let, let me get Jenny Byrne to respond to that. Uh, Jenny Byrne, respond to that. I know Mr. Chouet was talking about that. And maybe explain what Mr. Pauly ever meant. And, you know, cryptocurrencies are obviously a big deal. Um, they're popular. They may or may not be regulated. Obviously, there's lots of debate about it. What did he mean when he told people that through Bitcoin or other cryptos, people might have the opportunity to opt out of inflation. The Bank of Canada, former Bank of Canada governor told me he didn't think that was possible. What did he mean by that? Well, I think what, what Pierre is, is talking about when he's talking about crypto, it's modernization. I, I know there's going to be a lot of bureaucrats in the Bank of Canada that uh, that that, sh that that are not that do not think this is popular, but this is something where there is a large segment of the world's population, not just Canada's population, uh, that is looking in terms of uh, cryptocurrencies, is, is looking towards uh, Bitcoin, and and I know in terms of uh, the people that are coming out to Pierre's events, this is a big issue for some of them, and 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 Tasha, I know you've written extensively about the need for the Conservative Party of Canada to. Uh, to rejuvenate itself, to actually to modernize itself. And I would say that this policy issue, uh, this discussion that we're having is doing just that. There is a whole segment of the population that are Gen Zers uh, and also people that have never been involved in a political party. They're coming out to meet Pierre and to speak with him uh, regarding his position on uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Yeah, when I was talking about modernization, I didn't envision the future potential Prime Minister of Canada sitting there smoking shisha and talking Bitcoin about how wonderful it was for, you know, half an hour on video, as your candidate did, which I, you know, find very curious because it's the kind of thing that a lot of people look at and go, wait a minute, uh, wh what are you literally smoking? The information he's given on Bitcoin has led people to think that it is just some kind of alternative currency, when we know it is actually the most used means of cyber extortion in the world. Crimes and scams of Bitcoin are going up and up and up as well in this country. That you don't talk about. You don't talk about regulating it. You know, Michelle Garner, Rampo Garner, came out with a bill about regulation of crypto. That's a different thing. And we're going to have some policy things as well, because it's, yes, you need to to look at issues that come up, but to simply throw it around because you know it'll get people to vote for you uh, from a certain segment is really disingenuous. It's not what the Conservative Party is about. It's not what Canada's about. This race should be about finding and building a party that can appeal to enough people to get a majority government in the next election. And that is not what you're doing, but that is what Jean Charest is doing. Okay, I got uh, 30 seconds for you, Jenny, and then I got to call it, but I can, I'll have you both back anytime, as you both know. Uh, Jenny, you want to just respond? No, well, listen, I think that we're, we're the, the, this race, we are going to see, uh, uh, this race is showing that the policies and the views that Pierre Polyev have are very exciting, not just to Conservative Party members, but also to Canadians. The vast majority of people that are coming out to our events um, are, are not Conservative Party members. They're signing up, uh, they're, they're signing up. Tasha may not know that because of course she hasn't been to a Conservative Party event um, in the last 15 years, but these are people that are not regularly coming out to the events. We're, we're getting Conservative Party members, mm -hmm. but we're also getting new members that we're signing up. And so I think that we are gonna see the excitement uh, right up until the day, the, the uh, uh, membership cutoff on June 3rd, uh, and then right into the uh, right into the election day uh, when we find out who wins on uh, September 10th.
Uh, it's exciting already. Okay, we have yeah. 1,500 volunteers across the country. We have 1,500 people oh, who are get, signing okay. up members every day, 400 other volunteers. We've, we're okay. very excited about this, too, because we really think okay. it's going to be a great race, and in the end, that we're going to win. And, there, and Well, there's 10 other campaigns. Uh, listen, uh, Tasha, Jenny Byrne, always a pleasure to have both of you on. I really appreciate Thank it, you. your candor uh, and your advocacy for your own candidates. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Evan. Jenny Byrne and Tash Karen, wow. Uh, what do you think of that? Uh, so there gives you an indication of the stakes. All right, we're going to take a break from politics. I got a great interview lined up. Do you remember Chris Pronger, five-time All-Star, captain three teams over a 20-year career in the NHL, gold medalist for Canada, lifted the Stanley Cup with the Anaheim Ducks in 27, won the Norris Trophy? Well, Chris Pronger is going to join us. He's got an incredible story about how athletes end up Broke. This is an amazing thing. Chris Pronger on the other side of a break. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. As many of you know, I uh, just coached my last game for my uh, youngest son. My, uh, I mean, he may play four on four, but it was, it was, you know, I thought the guys were big. You know, they're six two, six three. A lot of them play football. I'm six four, and my son watches a lot of hockey. But I uh, remember watching Chris Pronger, six six, mean, tough, nasty, skilled. Like he was, you know, this is this guy. First ballot Hall of Famer, five-time All-Star, captain of three teams, 20-year career, Olympic gold medalist for Canada, Stanley Cup winner with the Ducks in uh, 2007. You know, Hart Trophy as MVP in 2000. Eight suspensions, 15 penalty minutes. This guy's unbelievable. And then you realize, okay, there's another level. And, and, and you think, well, what happens to a guy like Chris Pronger? And made a lot of money, tough guy. Turns out that after working for uh, in management in the NHL, he and his wife, uh, you know, have this company called Well Inspired Travels, a luxury travel company. And then he tweeted out, you know, a lot of people like me, a lot of professional athletes are broke. And I want to talk about it. So we dialed up Chris Pronger. And uh, what a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, um, I, I, let's talk hockey and then we'll talk, uh, we'll, we'll talk careers for a minute because it's, it's fascinating on, uh, because you got both sides. And I guess because it's so fresh watching my, uh, my, my youngest kid kind of finish his, he's not going to go on like you to play serious hockey, but he loves it. He's got a great passion for the game. When did you know, Chris, uh, this is my life. I'm going to go pro- professional. Like, were you that kid always? Uh, you know what? I obviously grew up in a small town in Northwestern Ontario, Dryden. And, uh, you know, we just kind of played in our area and I really didn't get a chance to, to go down to the greater GTA, if you will, the greater Toronto area and kind of see how you know, matching up against players and uh, especially of your age and, and your caliber, you really don't know. You're, you know, obviously no internet at the time. All I got was the Hockey Digest once a week, right. and, and you're watching Hockey Night in Canada every Saturday. Um, you, you really don't have a, a gauge to judge where you're at. And so, you know, growing up, I just loved playing the game. I loved having 
fun playing the game, played with my friends every day, whether it was outside playing road hockey or shooting pucks at my garage or going to the outdoor rink or, or, or having, you know, some structure uh, down at the Dryden arena. And so for me, it was just about playing the game and having mm. fun. And, but did you uh, know, as, like, like, were you that kid that no, was the best? I didn't know. Were you the best? I was, no. yeah, I was good. I yeah. was good. But, but, you know, when you're in a, from a small town, you, you don't know how it translates to the rest of the, the country, the rest of the world, you know, you're kind of stuck in your own little bubble. And, and it wasn't until I got, played junior B in Stratford and then got drafted, played, went to Peterborough's camp. And, and that's kind of where it, it really hit me when I got to Peterborough's camp and was doing my 48 hour thing and was possibly going to go do NCAA college hockey. And, uh, you know, was playing against first round picks, was playing against, you know, high prospects and things of that nature. And I just kind of looked at myself, I'm like, well, these guys aren't that good. You know, they get, they get built up in the media and you're reading all this, these articles about them and, uh, they kind of have this aura about them. And, um, you know, for me, having an opportunity to play against Eric Lindros my first year in junior uh, was the year that he held out. So I, I, I really got to test myself against, you yeah. know, ultimately some of the, the best players in the world at the time. So, so great. having that opportunity kind of gave me the the confidence and, and the wherewithal to go, all right, maybe there is something here. And, and I was matching up good against the top players in the league. Were you nervous? I, I, I had dinner a couple of years ago with Frank Mahovlich. And, and, and I, he said, you know, he was recruited out of St. Mike's, you know, the great school in Toronto, yeah. Chris, speaking of Chris Pronger. And he said, uh, when the coach put him on, he said, because uh, Frank was a you know, young gunner, but he says, I want you to cover uh, Rocket Richard. He said, what? He goes, just don't let him score. And, and Frank yeah. said, Frank tells this great story. He said, I was so nervous that I core. And Frank's a big guy like you, right? And he's like, the first shift he got on there, he, he tried to, to hit Rocket Richard. And, and, and Richard turns to him and he said, if you ever do that again, I'll stick this stick up down your throat kind of thing. <laughs> and, 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 you know what he, and he said, and I looked at him and I went, I'm sorry, Mr. Richard. <laughs> he said, yeah. Did you, like, just so great because he turns into a great like you. Were you nervous those first shifts? Like, man, I'm playing against guys that are, like, I've watched on Hockey Night in Canada. No, you know what? You know, you're nervous maybe before. I would, I would always be nervous before games. Just not knowing what's going to transpire. And once the game starts, though, and you, you take that first shift, you get hit, you hit somebody, you make a good pass, you, you know, what have you. Uh, you get so immersed in the game and so dialed in that, you know, I, I wasn't really nervous once, once the game started, uh, it was more the, the lead up to games and things right. like that. Who do you gotta, who do you gotta shut down and, and, and things of that nature. So for me, playing the game was the easiest part. Uh, you know, I took practice very serious, prepared for games and, and the games were always the easier part. It was the practice and the training and the things like that, putting the time and effort in and the work in to prepare for the games and you know I, the rest of that stuff was going to take care of itself so were you always um, a guy chris pronger like you know you've got this reputation as both skilled and nasty which is rare um you you you'd love to play mind games uh, you, you'd hammer people uh you didn't care what people thought if they were not on your team was that a strategy or was that a personality yeah, you know what? It's the way I always played the game. I always played the game hard uh, from a young age, and you know, I just I I I have a little bit of a temper, <laughs> <laughs> and and used it on the ice to my uh, to to those around me's detriment. But 
Um, you know, it's just, you know what, it's just the competitive nature of me and the way that I played the game. And, Did you love it? Like if you uh, hammered someone, yeah. was it like, oh, I, cause oh, my kids, when I coach them, better. they hammer someone. It's like, it's like they, they love it. They love it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like timing, a, when you, when you perfectly time a hit, you don't even feel it. It just, you're hitting a guy and you, you just can't, it just, your body just and you know, then then there's the moments where you're not timing it very well, and you know you pop a shoulder out, or you know you're going to hit a bigger guy, and and you know you get sent flying somewhere. And so, you know, from a timing perspective, you know, ingenuity and know-how, how to mm. how to play certain players. You know, I'd study the games and, and study uh, a lot of times just studying highlight real goals and, and under. And not watching the offensive player much, but watching the defensive player to see what he did or didn't do well. And and how in the future, you know, let's say I'm going up against Sergei Fedorov and he's going wide on me. He liked to try to cut back underneath your stick and then, you know, try to score that way. Well, how do you stop that? And just kind of working on things how like do that. You? Practice. By, the way, by the way, what'd you do? For, like, well, I mean, you played against the greats. What, what did you, when Fedorov's cutting have, in. You have to keep, you got to stay under control and you can't be reaching with your stick because he's just going to slide it underneath. You just got to be patient and allow him to run out of room. You know, right. a, a lot of time, you know, players don't want to be on the outside. They want to, they they want to go get inside. into the areas where they can score. And at some point they're going to have to cut inside. And then it's just a matter of, you know, running them out of space. And that yeah. next thing you know, you get them in the corner. <laughs> and then that, where I want him, <laughs> where you want him, I got uh, ninety seconds, I, and I want to get to the financial side because uh, that—that's what you're doing now. But just let me go on the on ice, and then we'll get to the off ice. Player that you most uh, feared offensively when you were a defenseman? You know, I, I didn't. I never looked at at it in that regard. Uh, you know, there's obviously players that I knew I needed to be at my best, and and I prepared as such, and and made sure that. Uh, not on my, not in my day. Um, you know, there, there's going to be times where you're going to get chewed up. Like, uh, when I was in early in my career in St. Louis, we went to Pittsburgh and Mario had four and three or four and four. Yeah, I don't know. It geez. was, it was a gong show. And every time I thought I had him, he, he just had this little play. He just flick it into the middle. And if my partner wasn't there in time, the guy cutting through would get it. It'd be a two on one. And, and he just did that over and over and over. Scary and you, from moments like that, you learn very quickly how to play certain players. And, you know, obviously everybody wants to go right to him and, yeah. and, and shut him down. So, but, you know, he's no different than anybody else. They're going to have plays set up in practice. They're going to... You know, that I got to take a break. I'm here with uh, one of the all time greats, uh, Chris Pronger. But I want to talk about the off ice because helping athletes who end up going broke is is critical. Chris Pronger next. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. As many of you know, I uh, just coached my last game for my uh, youngest son. My, uh, I mean, he may play four on four, but it was, it was, you know, I thought the guys were big. You know, they're six two, six three. A lot of them play football. I'm six four, and my son watches a lot of hockey. But I uh, remember watching Chris Pronger. Six six, mean, tough, nasty, skilled. Like he was, you know. This is this guy. 
first ballot Hall of Famer, five-time All-Star, captain of three teams, 20-year career, Olympic gold medalist for Canada, Stanley Cup winner with the Ducks in uh, 2007. You know, Hart Trophy as MVP in 2000. Eight suspensions, 15 penalty minutes. This guy's unbelievable. And then you realize, okay, there's another level. And, and, and you think, well, what happens to a guy like Chris Pronger? And made a lot of money, tough guy. Turns out that after working for, uh, in management in the NHL, he and his wife uh, you know, have this company called Well Inspired Travels, a luxury travel company. And then he tweeted out, you know, a lot of people like me, a lot of professional athletes are broke. And I want to talk about it. So we dialed up Chris Pronger. And uh, what a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, um, I, I, let's talk hockey and then we'll talk, uh, we'll, we'll talk careers for a minute because it's, it's fascinating on, uh, because you got both sides. And I guess because it's so fresh watching my, uh, my, my youngest kid kind of finish his, he's not going to go on like you to play serious hockey, but he loves it. He's got a great passion for the game. When did you know, Chris, uh, this is my life. I'm going to go pro- professional. Like, were Ooh. you that kid always? Uh, you know what? I obviously grew up in a small town in Northwestern Ontario, Dryden. And, uh, you know, we just kind of played in our area and I really didn't get a chance to, to go down to the greater GTA, if you will, the greater Toronto area and kind of see how you know, matching up against players and especially of your age and, and your caliber, you really don't know. You're, you know, obviously no internet at the time. All I got was the Hockey Digest once a week, right. and, and you're watching Hockey Night in Canada every Saturday. Um, you, you really don't have a, a gauge to judge where you're at. And so, you know, growing up, I just loved playing the game. I loved having fun playing the game, play with my friends every day, whether it was outside playing road hockey or shooting pucks in my garage or going to the outdoor rink or, or, or having, you know, some structure uh, down at the Dryden Arena. And so for me, it was just about playing the game and having mm. fun. And but did you know, uh, as, like, like, were you that kid that no, was the best? I didn't know. Were you the best? I was, no. yeah, I was good. I yeah. was good, but but you know, when you're in a, from a small town, you, you don't know how it translates to the rest of the, the country, the rest of the world. You know, you're kind of stuck in your own little bubble. And, and it wasn't until I got played junior B in Stratford and then got drafted, played, went to Peterborough's camp, and and that's kind of where it, it really hit me when I got to Peterborough's camp. and was doing my 48 hour thing and was possibly going to go do NCAA college hockey. And, uh, you know, was playing against first round picks was playing against, you know, high prospects and things of that nature. And I just kind of looked at myself, I'm like, well, these guys aren't that good. You know, they get, they get built up in the media and you're reading all this, these articles about them and, uh, they kind of have this aura about them. And, um, you know, for me having an opportunity to play against Eric Lindros, my first year in junior, uh, was the year that he held out. So I, I really got to test myself against, you yeah. know, ultimately some of the, the best players in the world at the time. So Great. having that opportunity kind of gave me the, the confidence and, and the wherewithal to go, all right, maybe there is something here. And, and I was matching up good against the top players in the league. Were you nervous? I, I, I had dinner a couple of years ago with Frank Mahovlich. And, and, and I, he said, you know, he was recruited out of St. Mike's, you know, the great school in Toronto, yep. Chris, speaking of Chris Pronger. And he said, uh, when the coach put him on, he said, because Frank was a you know, young gunner, but he says, I want you to cover uh, Rocket Richard. He said, what? He goes, just don't let him score. 
And, and Frank yeah. said, Frank tells this great story. He said, I was so nervous that I core. And Frank's a big guy like you, right? And he's like, the first shift he got on there, he he tried to to hit Rocket Richard. And, and, and Richard turns to him and he said, if you ever do that again, I'll stick this stick up down your throat kind of thing. <laughs> and, 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 you know what he, and he said, and I looked at him and I went, I'm sorry, Mr. Richard. (laughs) Did you, like, just so great, because he turns into a great like you. Were you nervous those first shifts? Like, man, I'm playing against guys that are, like, I've watched on Hockey Night in Canada. No, you know what? You know, you're nervous maybe before. I would would always be nervous before games. Just not knowing what's going to transpire. And once the game starts, though, and you, you take that first shift, you get hit, you hit somebody, you make a good pass, you, you know, what have you. Uh, you get so immersed in the game and so dialed in that, you know, I, I wasn't really nervous once, once the game started, uh, it was more the, the lead up to games and things right. like that. Who do you gotta, who do you gotta shut down and, and, and things of that nature. So for me, playing the game was the easiest part. Uh, you know, I took practice very serious, prepared for games and, and the games were always the easier part. It was the practice and the training and the things like that, putting the time and effort in and the work in to prepare for the games and you know, the rest of that stuff was going to take care of itself. So were you always um, a guy, Chris Pronger, like, you know, you've got this reputation as both skilled and nasty, which is rare. Um, You'd, you'd love to play mind games. Uh, You'd hammer people. Uh, You didn't care what people thought if they were not on your team. Was that a strategy or was that a personality? Yeah, you know what? It's the way I always played the game. I always played the game hard uh, from a young age, and you know, I just I I I, I have a little bit of a temper, <laughs> <laughs> and and used it on the ice to my uh, to to those around me's detriment. But uh, um, you know, it's just you know what? It's just the competitive nature of me and the way that I played the game. And, Did you love it? Like if you uh, hammered someone, yeah. was it like, oh, I, because oh, my kids, when I coach them, better. they hammer someone. It's like, it's like they, they love it. They love it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like timing, a, when you, when you perfectly time a hit, you don't even feel it. It just, you're hitting a guy and you, you just can't, it just, your body just, and you know, then, then there's the moments where, you're not timing it very well and you know, you pop a shoulder out or, you know, you're going to hit a bigger guy and, and, you know, you get sent flying somewhere. And so, you know, from a timing perspective, you know, ingenuity and know-how, how to, mm. how to play certain players, you know, I'd study the games and, and study uh, a lot of times just studying highlight real goals and, and under, and not watching the offensive player much, but watching the defensive player to see what he did or didn't do well. And, and how in the future, you know, let's say I'm going up against Sergei Fedorov and he's going wide on me. He liked to try to cut back underneath your stick and then, you know, try to score that way. Well, how do you stop that? And just kind of working on things how like do that. You? By the way, by the way what did you do? For, like, well, I mean, you played against the greats. What, what did you, when Fedorov's you cutting have, in. You have to keep, you got to stay under control and you can't be reaching with your stick because he's just going to slide it underneath. You just got to be patient and allow him to run out of room. You know, right. a, a lot of time, you know, players don't want to be on the outside. They want, they they want, want to go get inside. into the areas where they can score. And at some point, they're going to have to cut inside. And then it's just a matter of, you know, running them out of space. And that yeah. next thing you know, you get them in the corner. <laughs> and then, <laughs> Where I want them. <laughs> where you want them. I got uh, 90 seconds. I, and I want to get to the financial side because 
uh, that that's what you're doing now. But just let me go on the on ice, and then we'll get to the off ice. Player that you most uh, feared offensively when you were a defenseman. You know, I, I didn't. I never looked at at it in that regard. Uh, you know, there's obviously players that I knew I needed to be at my best, and and I prepared as such and and made sure that uh, not on my not in my day. Um, you know, there, there's going to be times where you're going to get chewed up. Like uh, when I was in early in my career in St. Louis, we went to Pittsburgh and Mario had four and three or four and four. Yeah, I don't know. It geez. was, it was a gong show. And every time I thought I had him, he, he just had this little play. He'd just flick it into the middle. And if my partner wasn't there in time, the guy cutting through would get it. It'd be a two on one. And, and he just did that over and over and over. Scary you know, and you, for moments like that, you learn very quickly how to play certain players and you know obviously everybody wants to go right to him and yeah and, and shut them down so, but you know they're he's no different than anybody else he, they're gonna have plays set up in practice they're gonna you know that competitive they're, 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 they're thinking of you chris i gotta take a break i'm here with uh, one of the all-time greats uh, chris pronger but i want to talk about the off ice because helping athletes who end up going broke is is critical chris pronger next As this story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. Chris Pronger, who you probably know, you probably watch Chris play hockey. He played for over 20 years. He was an all-star for five years. He's a Hall of Famer. He won the Norris Trophy. He raised the Stanley Cup. He won a gold medal. And now he's the uh, co-founder and president of Well-Inspired Travels. But he tweets out this the other day. I played 20 years in the NHL. I was one of the highest-earning NHL players of all time. My guess is that more than 50% of pro athletes have financial issues in retirement. And he goes on to tell stories literally about athletes spending a million dollars at a strip club. I didn't know there were that many clothes to take off. Uh, Chris Pronger joins me now. That's a lot of money at a strip club, Chris. <laughs> I know. You think after half a million, there's nothing me. left? There's nothing left. Yeah. No. It. Uh, yeah. No. I mean, it's funny. You hear you hear stories, and you're just. I don't know. It's. Uh, it's. It's hard for people to imagine, but uh, like anything, crazier things have happened to to lots of people, and you know, I think. I was at dinner with a friend of mine and, and he had just had a, a large liquidity event and we we're just talking about money. And, you know, then it was, then it came over to athletes and whatnot. And he was helping me with my, uh, my Twitter feed a little bit. And he's like, you know what, you should do a thread on this and, you know, kind of explain a lot of people right. don't understand. Obviously there's going to be the haters that are, could care less and, and that's so be it. And, and uh, there's also the folks that, that have had friends or family members that have gone through the same thing. And uh, really it's about shining a light on, on, on it more for athletes and for those around them that uh, you, you need to understand finance at a young age, whether that's as simple as opening a checking account and getting a debit card and a checkbook and, and all those things or um, and, and understanding how it all plays out through the course of a career. And, you know, from, from a hockey player's perspective, a lot of times you're turning pro at 18, 19, 20. Uh, you're, you're pretty sheltered in, in people around you, kind of taking care of things. And 
And next thing you know, you sign a contract and you're living on your own or you're living with a teammate and uh, you got all this money coming in and you really, you don't mm. know what to do. And there's not a lot of well, uh, well, when you guidance, turn, so to speak. When you turn pro in like 1993, players were making, as you say, average around 300000 Now the average is $2 million. You got a million dollar signing bonus at 18, as you as you wrote about. But like, there are guys out there, players, that uh, you know they think, oh, I signed a two million dollar contract or a five million dollar contract. And for those of us on the outside, it's like, oh, they've made it, they're done, they, 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 it all paid yeah. off. But you break it down like that: two million dollars a year. People think that person. What, like, by the way, it is great; it's incredible. But yeah. break it down as to actually what that means for a professional athlete in terms of agents and, and their life yeah. and, and what they do. What does it mean? You know, I, I think you know to keep it simple. If if a player makes $2 million and, you know, let's say escrow right now, escrow is crazy, but on average, it's been 10%. So you're going to lose 200,000 off the top. So now you got 1.8 and depending upon where you play, if you're playing a, a tax-free state like Nevada, Texas, Tennessee, Florida, you're capped at the 39% federal rate. So you take 40% off the top. Then you got to pay your agent, typically 3%. Uh, then you got to pay, uh, for whether it be an apartment or a house or whatever, then you're going to get a car. Then you're going to get, um, you know, probably have training costs associated with summertime. You've got food, uh, you know, may, some players get chefs, you know, and then not everybody, but some guys have it. Some guys don't, um, you know, and, and all those things, you're so not, what are your expenses you're certainly a not year? saving. You're certainly not saving. It, let's just, uh, I'll use myself. So when I was playing, I was spending anywhere from probably ten to fifteen thousand a year on my trainer, and then you got to eat a certain way, and you, you got to get supplements, and you got to get a training facility if you're not living in the city and, and able to work out in in the in the gym at the at the rink. Um, you've got uh, you know maybe you're going to meet your trainer, like I would fly to Phoenix to to work out with my trainer, get my new program. You know, there's, there's from, from the food, the training, uh, you know, all the things that guys do, uh, you're probably down to, you're well under 800,000 now, maybe 700,000. From a two, from just, 2 million or from 1 million? From two, no, from, from 2 million. And that's after now tax, you have, right? That's probably after tax. Yeah. You're probably down to 700. And now, and now you're sitting there going, okay, Still pretty uh, good, seven hundred. Okay, you're still good, but again, you got to remember the average career is three years, three to four years. So it, when you when you break it down into the average, and you use the average, you know, the median amount that somebody makes, and you take the average length of someone's career, and you start extrapolating backwards, mm. and depending upon, you know, let's say they have one or two poor investments, you know, some guy talks them into investing in some crazy scheme and are they targeted and, like you're you're a young 22 oh, year old you're making you get, two million got, a year are you targeted like every night you people coming at a bar? up to you all the time is that right well I mean, whether, whether it's at a bar whether it's on the street whether it's at lunch dinner whatever i mean it, it you know like hey chris i got an investment invest in this will make x t y right typically somebody's not going to do that in a bar but they might say hey here's my card call me tomorrow and then they're going to say oh you talk to the guy and he's going to make it sound all rosy and you're going to see these documents and you're going to go, okay, great. I know. I don't even know what they say. 
And then you got to find somebody. And he says, oh, here, he's my guy. Here's a lawyer. You know, if you're not schooled in the ways of the world and understand that you're a target and people will want to take advantage of you because you're young, you're impressionable, they're being nice to you, they're buying you drinks, or, you know, they're doing all this stuff. Uh, if, you're, if you don't have your guard up and you're, and you're kind of looking behind the uh, rose-colored glasses to see what, what really is there and isn't there, uh, you make one or two poor, poor investments like that, you have nothing left. Yeah, well, you, you say, you know, you talk about a, a, a Yankees pitcher of three million bucks stolen by his financial advisor because yeah. he didn't have power. You know, so it's like well, your closest, well, you, your you closest advisors over, and maybe sometimes family and friends uh, nail these well, athletes. When, when, you don't, when you don't have power of attorney, that person, and you sign it over, they're, you know, oh, I need power of attorney to, to write checks for you to pay your bills. You know, if guys are like, I, I don't want to do this, I just want to pitch. For, let's just use him as an example. If, if, if you sign over power of attorney and they have access to all your capital, that potentially can happen. And yeah, you're going to sue the guy, but good luck getting any money back. <laughs> the guy's living on your money. So how often um, are athletes calling you, Chris Pronger, and saying, hey, man, I heard about this Twitter thing. Like, I got I to gotta, I gotta comb my uh, financial hair here. Like, are you getting a lot of calls? I, I've talked to a number of people, and I've got some calls set up over the next, you know, three or four weeks with people just to find out, you know, is there, you know, lots of people have been in the same boat, uh, you know, f- from – you know, marginal players that have kind of been in and out of the league to star players to, you know, this is not a, and it, you know, other sports, it's, it's not a, it's a one size fits all. It's not a, right. Oh, it's only this type of athlete or this type of player. Um, you know, this sport, you know, it, it, it's a, and finding access to, to people that you can trust and, and how you vet people just, you know, I was fortunate enough. I lived with the family my first year in Hartford, and he he helped me. My dad was an accountant. He helped me on that side, and, right. and it just it, it worked out. You know, not everybody's that fortunate that things are able to play out. And, and, and even still, I still made my fair share of mistakes, and you do stupid stuff, and you have this money coming in, and you, you, you bought, try to you hit home the, runs. You bought the nice car, and you, you flashed the bills? Uh, no. Well, I had a nice car, but it, it more it's more about where you're investing. I mean, right. You can have a nice car, but you can't have a crazy car. And depending upon how much you make, you don't want to throw caution. When you've already won the lottery just by being in the league and making mm. the amount of money you're making, you don't have to hit home runs. You got to, If you hit singles and doubles, you're going to do great. And I think people get caught up in hearing the stories of, you know, whether it's athletes or rappers or business people or whomever – investing in these companies and making a boatload of money well that that's like a very very small percentage of the people so, doing that chris, and other people are losing their <laughs> losing everything chris i i, I got you how about that? i love this conversation i was talking to chris pronger how, can you hang for like one more segment or not are you cool i got you, one second for you all right buddy uh chris pronger <laughs> this is fantastic uh let's take a break i i, I got my calls are, are, are heating up uh, so many questions about chris pronger Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. So our text board is blowing up at 1-855-633-1010 and 71010 to text or to call. 
After we're speaking to the great uh, former NHL player, 20 years, uh, gold medalist, Stanley Cup champion, Hall of Famer, Norris Trophy, or Hart Trophy winner, rather, uh, not Norris, Hart, uh, Chris Pronger, um, now uh, president of Well-Inspired Travels, and he, he's he's talking about how athletes, you think you've made it, you land in the lettuce, you, you know, you live the dream, you become a professional athlete, you think, that's it, I can just, uh, I've got all the money in the world, and you don't in the end. It's expensive. You make bad decisions. You're a target for exploitation. And after 20 years as a professional athlete, he knows the stories and he's telling them now and he's giving some advice. Chris, what's the one piece of advice you would give to an athlete as they turn pro? Any athlete right now? Uh, the first thing I would tell them is not to buy a house. I would tell them to rent, invest the money in, you know, something quasi safe, whether, you know, some allocation to, you know, bonds, the market, what have you. I think keeping it as simple as possible early on while you learn about it is, is critical and fine. And then doing the research to find uh, the appropriate advisor that fits who you are and what you're all about. You know, there's, there's tons of them out there that are good and there's some bad ones out there that we've heard, you know, we've talked about, we've heard about. So, it, it, it's really more, you know, less about spending, you know, let's say you get 500,000 assigned. Don't forget, you got to pay tax on that. <laughs> right. But so typically it's 300 um, and, you know, invest it, you know, get a nice car for 50 grand or whatever, you know, or lease a car, whatever it is, whatever, whatever makes the most sense. Um, and, and try to be as frugal as possible. What happens is when guys are making really good money, you start ramping up the spending. And what happens to a lot of guys is they forget that when you're making five, $10 million a year, it, it ends and it ends when it ends, it ends fast. Is that right? <laughs> so like, and, and that's have, probably well, a shocker, right? It ends fast because you're, yeah, you're used to making X amount of dollars and the money's coming in and you're, you're living life and you're at, you know, you're meeting people of, you know, similar status and, 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 you know, money and you start trying to keep up with the Joneses. It can happen in the blink of an eye and you don't realize you're spending that much money. You're not, well, you're not paying attention. You're playing, you're having a good time. You're living your life. And, and Oh, by the way, it's over when you're 30, 35, 40 years old. Now what you got another 30 to 40 years to live 40, 50 years, whatever, uh, whatever the lifespan is. And, that's a long time to live potentially without a job. You, you know, most people get a second job, but uh, if you handle it and manage your money, right, you don't have to, if you don't want to. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I know you got to go here, but uh, I, I think that's great advice. Part like, you know, in politics, Chris, speaking of Chris Pronger, they always say, you know, you're out of politics when you get into a back of the back of a car and it doesn't go anywhere. It's like, Oh crap. I don't have a driver anymore. It's like, <laughs> I got to go. I got to get started. And, but it's the same, I think, with a professional athlete. And I think first you get entourages, your buddies. You want to buy your parents a house to thank them for all their support. You know, you spend money quick, and, and it goes quick. Yeah. And you think, you're, you know, you think you're the kind of the king there. And as you say, the royalties stop coming in. How hard is it psychologically, though? Like there is that. And then, because, you know, you go from being a star, you're in the locker, the team, you're playing in front of crowds, you're making a lot of money. Then you get an injury or your career ends. And then, you, like, you, what gives you the same juice that that gives? And a lot of people, a lot of athletes have told me, like they just they peak so early and it's hard to adjust. They can't find anything they love as much. Yeah. Uh, I would I would say when you look at 
you know, baseball isn't as physical. I'd say hockey, football, basketball, to a certain degree, you, you have to play in a physical sport. You have to play like you're invincible and you have to play um, on the edge a lot. You have to have this mindset and that mindset doesn't always equate to uh, good financial decisions. It doesn't always equate to uh, thinking long-term most players when they're 23, 24, 25, 26, they don't want to think about when it's going to be over. They want to live in, you know, live in the moment. They want to enjoy every moment. They want to, but you have to take that step back and go, okay, long-term, what am I going to need? What am I going to, you know, do, what's, what's the nest egg going to look like? And it's, it's a hard mindset to get out of, to think back on how you're going to live life when you're retired. And for some players that get injured, you know, mid-career, it's extremely challenging to get past that stigma. Okay, I, I was an athlete. I'm not an athlete. What do I do now? Yeah. Because that's all they've ever done since they were a kid is, is play a sport. And and a lot of people get stuck with that as their identity. Oh, that's so-and-so. He was a football player. Or so-and-so. He was a hockey player. And, and so when that becomes your to total identity, it, you begin to think that's your self-worth is the sport. Yeah. And when you're not playing the sport, that's when players get depressed and things go sideways. And, um, you know, it, it's, it can be very hard to, yeah. to comprehend and understand. Chris Pronger, you're amazing. Uh, uh, Chris Pronger, uh, obviously Hall of Famer, great NHL player. You get, thanks, by the way. You gave me a lot of joy watching you. Uh, sometimes cheering you. against you, sometimes cheering for you. <laughs> hey, that's hockey, right? <laughs> Hey, hey, you know that—that's not the only one. No, man, and, I, and you know what? I—you always had a grin when the other guys hated you. You were like, "I love it. I love that's just so great." Uh, but but listen, uh, most important father, husband, uh, president of Well Inspired Travels, and, and a great great guy. Come back anytime, Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, pal. Chris Pronger. Uh, how great is he? Um, man, he played tough. He played joyously tough. He'd hammer you. He'd cross check you. He he jaw at you. Uh, he 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 was a tough player, but he was a quality player. Like if you were playing against Chris Pronger, you did not like him. If you were playing for with him, you loved him. You love because he was your guy. He was your leader. He was fearless, tough, and you want that guy in your team. You just don't want to play against him. And I can tell you, every chalkboard of every coach, was like, how do we handle Chris Pronger? But what's great is, instead of going on the rubber chicken circuit and saying, I remember doing this and scoring that and winning that, he's kind of gone the other way. And he's saying, look, man, I, I, I loved hockey. I tried management in Florida. didn't love it. And I want to sort of be an example and continue to be a leader. Now, some of the texts I've got, and I don't know if anyone's uh, – you know, you can call me at one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. And I just brought Chris on for a long time because I just thought that's so fascinating. But um, some of the texts are just thank you so much because uh, you know, well, you know, he's this is a fantastic guy, and, and and players need to realize they have short. You know, they're they're gifted athletes. They've won the lottery, as Chris said, but they've got three, four, five, six years, and that's it. After 10 years to make it. 
Now, someone said, you know, with all respect to Chris Pronger, we all have to buy cars and food and houses, and most don't live in mansions or drive Ferraris. It's about control. It's true. But most people at their 20s never have those options. No one's offering you a million dollars in your 20s or $2 million or $5 million. You are already an elite of the elite. People are paying money to see you. So you're living in this crazy golden bubble, and it can get to your head. It's drinking 10 shots all of a sudden. You are intoxicated on the success. And I think that's what Chris is talking about. He's not talking about, like, he realizes these are elite athletes in an elite and and rarefied air. And yet many of them come out the other side. They're broke because, and someone says, "Are, are we supposed to feel bad for professional athletes who can't manage their money? They make more money in these three years than, than most of us make in a lifetime. That is true. And there's no pity here. This is not about, oh, poor professional athlete. This is just a reality check. This is his world. This is There are kids out there listening, and, and many of you who dreamt about being a professional athlete, dreamt about being so good at something, you become a professional, that comes with an enormous amount of rewards, but there's another side to it. And I think it's, why, why do we only cover professional athletes and the good stuff? Here's the reality. They got to manage their success because they're young. They're 18, 19, 20, and they're, they're doing things that most of us will never have to figure out. All right, we're going to take a break. That was great. You think that was good? How about finding a dinosaur with the skin still on next? When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. Time to uh, end our day with your daily dose of dinosaurs. Look. You know that the asteroids kill the dinosaurs. We know that. But you always feel like they're finding fossils and they're finding bones. But apparently, there's a leg of a dinosaur preserved that has skin on it. It's like, what? So The guy that found it is a, is a graduate student at the University of Manchester in the UK. He was leading the Tannis dig named Robert De Palma. And uh, the Tannis fossil is in, I know you think, Tannis, isn't that the Well of Souls from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark in Egypt? No, the Tannis fossil site is in North Dakota. And we have pleasure to have Robert De Palma on the show. Hello, Mr. De Palma. Hello there. How are you? I'm great. I love this story. Tell us what you found. This is just like unbelievable. Well, uh, what my team discovered is a a very, very well-preserved portion of a dinosaur where we have the articulated uh, rear limb of the a dinosaur that is inside a three-dimensionally preserved impression of the uh, the skin and soft tissue. And that sort of thing has been found in the past for different dinosaurs. But what makes this very, very special is where it was found. Because the rock unit where this was discovered uh, was recently documented in the uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences as uh, coming from the moments after the Chichilub impact, the asteroid impact that brought about an end to the Cretaceous. So the unit actually is packed with uh, ejectospherules that were shot out of the impact crater at the time of impact. I am, is, you're losing me. Hold on. Oh, I love this beyond belief. I just yeah. want to understand what the hell you're talking about. Ted, slow <laughs> down. This is, so you're saying the asteroid hits the Earth, at, and, and, and how close does it hit to, to North Dakota? 
The asteroid hit approximately 3,000 kilometers away in the Yucatan Peninsula, Mexico. Okay, and so and so, what's happening at that moment in this dinosaur? What so so then? What happens in North Dakota? What are you seeing? So what happened is once that asteroid hit, we're talking about a 10-kilometer asteroid hitting at perhaps 20 kilometers a second. So that's a major event. And after that occurred, the asteroid obliterated. It excavated out an enormous crater, and all of the debris, the molten debris, shot through the air, out of the atmosphere, and it came down on ballistic trajectories. You have these little blobs of molten glass that then turn into these little spheres of hardened glass. And they're all raining through the sky and coming back as these little incandescent streaks through the sky in North Dakota, arriving uh, within tens of minutes and continuing to fall for perhaps an hour, maybe two at most. So basically molten rock, glass just raining down, killing everything. The glass sort of added insult to injury. So the glass probably wouldn't have killed anything except for perhaps the fish in the deposit because they've got these glassy spherules wedged in their gills that they sucked in while they were in the water column. But uh, if it pelted you on the surface, it would have really stung. It would have hurt. Probably wouldn't have killed you, but you would have rued the day you were born if you were in that rain of hot glass. Okay, what happens to the dino that you found? The dino that I found, uh, while we cannot 100% say this died in the surge, what we can say is that it was buried by a surge deposit. So what we have at Tanis is a deposit of sediment that was laid down by a massive inland-directed water surge right after impact. So that surge happened during the period of spheral fallout from the atmosphere. So that's a very narrow window. And that leg was deposited in that layer of sediment during that uh, event. So the leg is so well-preserved, it does not appear to have decayed before impact. So either that animal died during the surge as a result of it, or so shortly before the surge, it did not yet have time to decay. So, you know, as a scientist, we can't link this 100% to the impact event, Mm. but it's probably the closest thing we could ever get to saying that animal died so close to impact that probably had a front row seat to one of the coolest, if not deadliest events of the Cretaceous. So, so, so now that the animal's dead, but so, so tell me what, when you see this leg, because you, Part of this, as I speak to Robert De Palma, we're talking about what he uh, he and his team found at Tanis in North Dakota, which is this inc- remarkable site, as you say. Like when you say the skin's on it, I'm looking at it. Tell tell me what it is and what kind of dinosaur it is, because I gotta say, you know, this it, it has that classic kind of velociraptory kind of leg. Well, even if this leg had nothing to do with the impact story, it would still be a very, very important piece to paleontology and and to researchers like myself and my team. Because when you look at this, you're essentially seeing what looks like almost like a turkey leg from from the dinner table that is turned to stone. Because all the bones are articulated and covered in a preserved layer of of, uh, skin impressions in the rock. And it's a little bit dark probably because of uh, uh, organic staining. But you see all the scales on the surface. You see the ripples of the muscles uh, as they would have appeared in life. Muscles are gone. It's all stone now. But you can see uh, the three-dimensional aspect of how the leg would have looked uh, in life. And the bones are there. But this is probably from a herbivorous dinosaur. And uh, the skeleton side shows us it's probably from a herbivore called a Thessalosaur. That was a a plant-eating dinosaur from the late Cretaceous. And, and what what does the skin tell? Like, how common is that to be able to actually see what kind of skin they had? Patches of skin are more common than three-dimensionally preserved skin on top of articulated skeletons like this. 
And Thessalosaur specimens are, are very poorly known for their soft tissue in the fossil record. So this is, as far as we know, this is probably the best example of Thessalosaur skin in the fossil record. And it's the only one that I'm aware of that has three-dimensional preservation like mm. this. We see new scale patterns here that haven't been documented in Thessalosaurus before. So like I said, even if this had nothing to do with the impact, now we've got a better window into what these animals looked like. How big would this, uh, this guy have been? This is a juvenile. So when I say turkey-sized, I mean it. It's the, the drumstick. It's the size of a turkey drumstick. So if this oh, this isn't like, oh, I you, see. Oh, I thought we were talking yeah. about this was a massive dino boat. This, this, is just... this dinosaur would have been roughly two, two and a half feet tall at the hip. Uh, it'd be, it was a sub-adult or a juvenile at the time of death. Oh. Now, are there bigger uh, dino bones around this place? There are indeed. In fact, uh, the largest dinosaur preserved at the site uh, is a disarticulated ceratopsian, probably triceratops. It's in the same surge deposit. It was buried by the same ejecta-bearing surge. And, uh, and that triceratops has uh, patches of preserved skin, but nothing three-dimensional like this. And all the bones are jumbled up, unlike this leg. So we know that that triceratops was dead and decayed before impact. This place was crawling with dinosaurs. The place was crawling with dinosaurs. There are dinosaur footprints under the surge. So we know that dinosaurs were living in the immediate area right before impact. And the surge deposit, that muddy layer that has all those little ejectospherules in it, is capped by a fine-grained clay layer that is enriched with iridium and shocked quartz and all the other stuff that you see in what we call the KPG boundary clay. That's the impact fallout, all the dust-sized wow. fallout after impact. And that's not disturbed. So that layer sitting on top of the site locks this in time. Amazing. I just want to use the term ejectospherules once and know that this is still a PG show, folks. Uh, Robert De Palma, a graduate student at the University of Manchester, UK, leading the Tannis Dig, who found this remarkably preserved leg of a dinosaur. Thanks, man. That was just fascinating. I, and good luck. You're going to have many, many parts of your life spent in uh, North Dakota. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. That is so great. Here, here's the thing. Life is a search for your passion, right? Life is the search for the thing that resonates with your heart. And have you ever heard someone more passionate than Robert De Palma on that? Finding the dinosaur? Find that thing that makes you speak like that. I'll see you on Power Play tonight, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV.